While David is on the run, Ziba, Mephibosheth's guardian, approaches with evil intentions. This is the 35th sermon in the series, Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from 2 Samuel and chapter 16, as we move into chapter 16, the first 14 verses, verses 1 through 14. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration, the prophet writes... And when David was a little past the top of the hill, behold, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of asses saddled and upon them 200 loaves of bread and a 100 bunches of raisins and a 100 of summer fruits and a bottle of wine. And the king said unto Ziba, What meanest thou by these? And Ziba said, The asses be for the king's household to ride on and the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat and the wine that such as be faint in the wilderness may drink. And the king said, And where is thy master's son? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he abideth at Jerusalem, for he said, Today shall the house of Israel restore me the kingdom of my father. Then said the king to Ziba, Behold, thine are all that pertaineth unto Mephibosheth. And Ziba said, I humbly beseech thee that I may find grace in thy sight, my lord, O king. And when King David came to Behurim, behold, thence came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. He came forth and cursed still as he came. And he cast stones at David and at all the servants of the king. David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And thus said Shimei when he cursed, Come out! Come out, thou bloody man, and thou man of Belial. The Lord hath returned upon thee all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose stead thou hast reigned. And the Lord hath delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom thy son. And behold, thou art taken in thy mischief, because thou art a bloody man. Then said Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, unto the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over, I pray thee, and take off his head. And the king said, What have I to do with you, ye sons of Zeruiah? So let him curse, because the Lord hath said unto him, Curse David. Who shall then say, Wherefore hast thou done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son, which came forth of my bowels, seeketh my life. How much more now may this Benjamite do it? Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord hath bidden him. It may be that the Lord will look on mine affliction and that the Lord will requite me good for his cursings this day. And as David and his men went by the way, Shimei went along on the hillside over against him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and cast dust. And the king and all the people that were with him came weary and refreshed themselves there. The evangelist Matthew writes to us in chapter 7, speaking the Lord Jesus Christ, his words in verse 21 through 23. For the same spirit, Matthew records this. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, Have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wondrous works? Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, 
ye that work iniquity. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now Solomon, David's son, is very astute when he states that there is nothing new under the sun. And he says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 9. Notice what he says by inspiration. The things that had been, it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. In the same way that treachery was in the garden against the eternal king of nations, so too do we now see treachery against the king of Israel, David. And yet we should not be at all surprised about this kind of betrayal and treachery, especially when we see such a deception and treachery in the halls of the culture that we live in today, including but not limited to politics, government, communities and the various institutions that make up society. There's treachery abounding in all of these areas of life. But sadly, all too often, we also witness treachery within the visible congregations of Christendom. And while Ziba initially seemed at the first, although it may seem a bit dubious to look at his character, but it seemed, at least initially at the first, Ziba seemed to be a man concerned about the well-being of Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. He, of course, was his guardian and the legacy of Jonathan's family. We see now, however, that this man may only have been deceiving David, using his deception as a tactic against David to destroy David and then, of course, exalt himself and his allegiance to the rebellious Absalom. Now let's consider for a moment how Ziba's initial relationship to David afforded him an audience with the king while David was in exile. And this is the essence of spycraft. Ziba is posturing. He's promoting himself. He's promoted himself to the king as a man that could be trusted. He positioned himself in such a way as to gain power while playing the part of a man without power. So he made himself to be humble. I will be Mephibosheth's guardian. I will be your servant, David, in order to bring himself to a place of power down the road. Very, very cunning, very strategic. Notice strategy. And when David was a little past, this is chapter 16, verse 1 of Second Samuel, and when David was a little past the top of the hill, behold, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him. And notice what he does. He brings a couple of asses saddled, and upon them two hundred loaves of bread, and a hundred bunches of raisins, and a hundred of summer fruits, and a bottle of wine. Now the first thing we learn is Ziba knew exactly where to find the king. He knew where he was going, he knew where he was exiled, he was running from Absalom at this point, but Ziba knew exactly where to find the king. Now if Ziba knew, others also knew as well. Secondly, knowing that David might be cautious as to who approached him while in exile, because he's always on the alert here. It's, this is red alert. Ziba brings gifts in order to make David more malleable. So he brings gifts in order to lull David into a false sense of security, while at the same time planning to deceive David with his counsel. Third point. These weren't just any gifts. These weren't just little tokens that he would bring. These were substantial gifts. If you want to get on the good side of a powerful man, you better bring some substantial gifts. 
Basically, you better be bribing him with something substantial. He was bribing David. He was bringing David a bribe to further show that he was a man to be trusted. Look at what I'm giving you. I'm giving you all of these gifts. A couple of donkeys saddled and ready to ride. Not just donkeys, not just just asses, but saddled, ready to ride. Everything's ready to go. 200 loaves of bread. 100 bunches of dried grapes and 100 summer fruits and also a bottle of wine. All of these things he was saying to refresh the exiles. Now each of these were carefully chosen to telegraph a certain posture and a certain intention of the gift giver. Now, of course, with everything, these are representational. Everything has a gospel significance. Consider the gifts and what they represented. Firstly, to bring donkeys ready to ride not only were a help in transportation, that was obvious. They would help the exiles to continue in their journey away from Absalom, who was hunting his own father, to assassinate him, to kill him, and to take the kingdom for himself. But these were also symbolic, because the donkeys were a symbol of judgeship. Asses were used for judges to ride upon throughout the city while they held office. And they were usually white. And so what Ziba is saying is, David, my king, the judge of Israel, the light of Israel, you are the king, and I'm going to give you the symbolic gesture of these donkeys to ride upon, signifying that your counsel is still solidified with me. The counsel of the judge, which is pure and righteous, I am now conferring to you. Now we read of this in Judges chapter 5, verse 10. Now notice, The scripture says, Speak, ye that ride on white asses, ye that sit in judgment and walk by the way. So Ziba's bringing these donkeys to show David that he believes David is still the judge of Israel. This was all deception. This was the message that was telegraphed when Jesus rode through the city in Jerusalem on an ass and its colt. Interestingly, it was the judge that rode upon a donkey, and his son always would ride upon the colt. And so when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and a colt, it was symbolic of his judgeship, not only that he is God himself, but he is the Son of God, the incarnate Jesus Christ. And we know this from Judges chapter 10, verse 4. Notice, And he had thirty sons that rode on thirty asses. So the judges would ride on the donkey, their sons would ride on their colts, and they were usually white, a picture of purity. Now the Jews the Jews would have known that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, that it was Yahweh that was the judge, according to Isaiah thirty three twenty two, where Isaiah says, For Yahweh is our judge, for Yahweh is our lawgiver, for Yahweh is our king, he will save us, he is the Savior. It signaled his divine, universal lordship. And that's what infuriated the Pharisees. Now, Ziba's asses were most likely, as I said, white, telling David that Ziba actually believed that he, not Absalom, is the legitimate king. Now, if Ziba would have gifted David with any other color, you think about brown donkeys or gray donkeys. Instead of white, perhaps his entire symbolic plan would have lacked credibility and may have even backfired. Why are you giving me a gray donkey? Why are you giving me a a, 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 so, a soiled donkey? 
So I believe he's giving him these donkeys to show that he is on board with David. Secondly, the 200 loaves of bread were to feed David's exiled family and his faithful followers. And that was just a practical thing. Very much needed since they were in exile. But this also was symbolic. It symbolized something much more significant as was the bottle of wine significant and the dried grapes and the summer fruits. Each of these have gospel significance. Zeba was bringing symbols of redemption, reconciliation and lordship to David, but he was bringing them with ill intent. And remember, all of this is taking place at the top of Mount Olivet. While these were true gospel symbols and indeed held real significance, the motive was deceitful. The motive that Ziba had was deceitful. And I am surprised that, you know, when you read the scriptures and you see the deception of the man bringing all of these gifts, all of these things, with all this symbology, I'm even surprised that the scriptures did not record Ziba rushing to David and, and giving him a kiss as Judas did before he betrayed the Christ. Perhaps that would have been too obvious. But all he does is he brings these gifts with a deceptive motivation. Now when asked what was Ziba's intention, he tells the king that the gifts are simply to support David's people while in exile. And we see this in verse 2. And the king said unto Ziba, What meanest thou by these and Ziba said, The asses be for the king's household to ride on, and the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine that such as be faint in the wilderness may drink. Now perhaps David was asking the question because he might have been a bit suspicious. In other words, why are you being so supportive of me? Where's Mephibosheth? Where's your, your master? Remember, Ziba is the servant of Mephibosheth. And the king said, Where is thy master's son? Jonathan, your master. Mephibosheth, as the son, your master. Where is he? Why are you here and you haven't brought Mephibosheth, who I have brought into my own table? Now, perhaps David was initially curious why Ziba would go out of his way to bring such support without Mephibosheth, especially since Ziba didn't own anything. He didn't own any of these gifts. They all belong to Mephibosheth by the hand of David. If you remember, David gave all of Mephibosheth his, his, his wealth and Ziba was the servant. Note Ziba's answer. And here it is where Ziba hatches his covetous treachery. The man is covetous of power, of wealth, and he's going to throw Mephibosheth under the bus. And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, as far as it concerns Mephibosheth, he's in Jerusalem. Because you know what he said to me, today shall the house of Israel restore me the kingdom of my father. Today, because David is on the run, because David is on the run, I'm going to get back the kingdom of Saul. Saul and Jonathan. Jonathan was supposed to get the kingdom. He's dead. My grandfather is dead. I'm going to take over. So, Ziba knew that David, at this point, was ripe for this type of news since everyone seemed to be lusting after the throne. Why wasn't the house of Saul lusting after the throne as well? So David was very susceptible to this kind of deception. David was on the run. Absalom was not yet in full power of the kingdom and it seemed very plausible that the house of Saul under the leadership of Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, might see an opportunity to restore the honor of the house of Saul and the dynasty of the tribe of Benjamin. 
So this was very possible. And David was very susceptible. This was a perfect storm if it was true. Absalom is now against David. Mephibosheth, who David gave all of this wealth to, is now against David. And what else can happen? What else can go wrong? So hearing this, David surmises that everything that Ziba is saying is true. And unfortunately, he takes action, immediate action. And that was his mistake. And once again, and we love David, but once again, David forgets fundamental biblical principles. Instead of verifying Ziba's claim, instead of going to Mephibosheth or sending a messenger or a spy to search out the intentions of Mephibosheth, he reacts to the counsel of Ziba. He reacts to the counsel of one man. Solomon, perhaps commenting on what his father had done in this situation, gives us this warning in Proverbs 18, 17. He that is first in his own cause seemeth just, but his neighbor cometh and searcheth him out. We have to verify anything and everything when it comes to us. We have to go to the source. David failed to search out the matter to see whether it was true or false. And he responded. He reacted. It was a knee-jerk reaction. And so David, in what seems to be a fit of anger and perhaps even gross disappointment gives every because he had given everything that he had to Mephibosheth now he's going to give everything that he gave to Mephibosheth to Ziba it's exactly what the man wanted that's exactly what Ziba wanted Ziba is playing the king by setting up a situation where not only is his son Absalom rebelling, but his adopted son Mephibosheth is rebelling. And this was all too much for David. It was just too much for David to deal with. And so he strikes out immediately at Mephibosheth by taking all of his property and giving it to Ziba, essentially making Mephibosheth a beggar. Now you have to understand, at this point, David's wits are almost gone. He's a man on the run. There's gross disappointment in his son. There's sorrow. There's repentance because of all the things that are coming upon him because of his sin with Bathsheba. So he's down to his last wit. David's decision, however, poses more of a problem than just taking from one and giving to another. David, by doing that, is violating his oath, the oath that he made to Jonathan. This was a covenant oath that David said he would not violate. But the question that we have to ask is, as immediately we see, well, David now is violating his oath. But was there a just cause for the violation of that oath? Was there just cause in going back on that oath or any oath for that matter? Can we swear an oath and then we go back on an oath? Can we make a deal and then go back on that deal? What are the parameters? If we can, how can we? If not, then why not? Well, aside from David's failure to assess the situation by going to Mephibosheth or even by asking Zadok the priest who was at Jerusalem at this time to either confirm or deny the allegation, David was perfectly in his right, provided this was a true account, to strip Mephibosheth of his wealth. All David and Jonathan's oath stated, if you remember, was that Jonathan's family line would not be destroyed. It didn't say anything about granting wealth or titles. It just said, I am not going to destroy your posterity. Perhaps a technicality. But it just might be a reason to violate or to go back or to nullify that oath, especially if treason was Mephibosheth's plan. David could have simply given Mephibosheth a comfortable living 
without bringing him into the king's house. Remember what he did. He said, you will be my son. You will. The king's wealth is your wealth. I'm giving you everything as if you were my own son. He could have just given him a comfortable living without bringing him into his own house and making him as one of his sons. But here, once again, God gives us a glimpse of the gospel. If Mephibosheth at this point in the historical narrative represents Adam, the lesson might seem very clear. Remember, there are always analogies. There are always symbologies. There's types and figures. And God is always showing us some glimpse of the gospel in all of these historical accounts. When Adam was created, he is called the Son of God in Luke's lineage. In Luke chapter 3, verse 38, notice, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the Son of God. So Adam is given the title of the Son of God, not the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the only begotten of the Father. Adam, however, is the firstborn, the created one, the first one who was created out of the dust. Yet Adam was not the natural Son of God in the same way that Mephibosheth was not the natural son of David. When Adam sought to rebel against the kingdom of God, his throne and his authority... God stripped Adam of all of his wealth and sent him into exile as a beggar in the same way that David is now sending Mephibosheth without any wealth as a beggar. Even though there was a covenant agreement between God and Adam, once that agreement was violated and Adam sought to be God, in other words, Adam sought to be treasonous against God, God was perfect and legitimate in his right to disavow that agreement in the same way as David annuls his agreement with, with Jonathan. Now, once the agreement with Ziba is completed, David moves his entourage northward to a place called Beharim, which is a city within the tribe of Benjamin. Now, that it's in itself is curious. In verse 5, we read this. And when King David came to Beharim, behold, thence came out a man of the family of the house of Saul. David goes to the tribe of Benjamin. He's going through the Benjamites. And a man comes out out of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera, he came forth and he cursed still as he came. My question, of course, is why would David now, knowing of this situation where the house of Saul is now threatening the house of David, why would David travel through the land of the Benjamites when news had just come to him that Mephibosheth might be trying to galvanize the tribe of Benjamin against David? And that's very unclear, perhaps even confusing. And nevertheless, David does travel through that that area, and he is met by a man named Shimei. Upon seeing David, and of course you have to understand the tribe of Benjamin is now at odds with David. They were lovers of Saul. This Shimei must have been a devotee of Saul. And he is meeting David now while David walks through this, the tribal area. So David travels to this area and is met by a name, and is met by a man named Shimei. Now, upon seeing him, this man takes the initiative and he comes out and he begins to curse David along with throwing rocks. Just think about this. Throwing rocks at the king and his people that were with him. Rocks and dust. He's throwing them. He's cursing them. He's throwing. Note his indictment. Verse 5 and following of 2 Samuel 16. And when King David came to Beharum, Behold, thence came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. 
He came forth and cursed still as he came. And he cast stones at David and at all the servants of the king and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. So you think about the situation here. You've got David and his bodyguards and yet the man's throwing rocks and cursing. And thus said Shimei when he cursed. Come out, come out, thou bloody man and thou man of Belial. The Lord hath returned upon thee all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose stead thou hast reigned. And the Lord hath delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom thy son. And behold, thou art taken in thy mischief, because thou art the bloody man. Now notice first, even though all of David's mighty men stood on either side of David as his bodyguards, Shimei is bold enough. You've got to give the man credit. He's fearless for the wrong thing, but he's fearless nevertheless. I wish that some Christians would be fearless for the right thing, but he's fearless for the wrong thing. And he's so bold as to curse David while he's flanked by his bodyguards, calling him a bloody man, a man of Belial, a man, in in other words, which that that means you are a man of wickedness, you are a worthless, good-for-nothing so-and-so. That's basically what that Hebrew word means. Secondly, even though he's cursing David, he is wrongly assessing the situation that is befalling the king. Notice, the Lord hath returned upon thee all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose stead thou hast reigned, and the Lord hath delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom thy son, which was false, and behold, thou art taken in thy mischief, because thou art a bloody man. Now, this indictment was, was not actually true, not accurate. David was not the cause of Saul's demise or the reason for the kingdom of Saul to be taken from him and given to David. David had nothing to do with that. Furthermore, if anyone was a bloody man, it was Saul. It was Saul who tried to kill David so many times, over and over and over, even conspiring with Jonathan to kill David. And even sent David to retrieve 100 foreskins from the Philistine army in order to marry his daughter, Michal, knowing that he might be killed in that attempt. In fact, hoping that David would be killed in that attempt. That was a veiled assassination plan. That's what makes Saul the bloody man. Saul, if you remember, also, just without any kind of provocation, assassinates the priests of Nob by the hand of Doeg the Edomite. In the case of Ishbosheth, Saul's son and Abner, Saul's war chief, it was not David who killed those individuals, but rather Joab. Joab was the bloody man, not David in those regards. However, with every false accusation, there's often some truth in it. David was in fact the bloody man, but not because of the situation with Saul, Ishbosheth, or Abner. David was a bloody man because of the murder of Uriah the Hittite, which actually brought this whole thing out. In this way, Shimei is correct. So even when someone curses you, 90% of it might be wrong, but is there a glimmer of truth in that? And David understood that. And what is befalling David is a direct result of his adultery with Bathsheba, which led to the murder of her husband by the king. Verse 9 introduces us to the fact that Abishai... Joab's brother, a cunning man, a very valiant warrior, of course, not a very ethical man, Joab's brother, who was comrade in much of the bloodiness that Shimei is referring to, he is among the bodyguards of David. This is the same Abishai, 
that was part of the murder of Ishbosheth and the assassination conspiracy to kill Abner, Saul's war chief, in a planned, premeditated murder for which they were never held accountable. And that's again on David. In typical hot-headed fashion, which is what Abishai was, he was a hothead, Abishai responds to Shimei's accusations. And you just got to love this. Then said Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, unto the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? I'm going to defend you, my king. Let me go over, I pray thee, and take off his head. But note the king's response. It's very much like the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. They said, Lord, let us bring down fire from heaven and consume them all. You know not what manner of men you are. Note David's response, the king's response. And the king said, verse 10, What have I to do with you, ye sons of Zeruiah? In other words, if you want to infer, if you want to read into this, you have caused me so much trouble, you have been such a thorn in my side, a pain in my back, that what am I going to do with you now? What have I to do with you now? And this reminds us of the relationship that he has with his cousins. David had remarked previously that he had been somewhat frustrated with the sons of Zeruiah, Joab, and Abishai. In fact, after the assassination of Abner, David confesses in 2 Samuel 3.39, And I am this day weak, though anointed king, and these men of the sons of Zeruiah be too hard for me. They are my thorn. And so by this, David is confessing that these sons were so stubborn to the point that they were so unruly. These men are so uncontrollable in their zeal, in their misplaced zeal, in their misplaced passion, and their arrogance, that he, at this point, wants nothing to do with them. He is reiterating this in the situation with Shimei. I want nothing to do with you, your impetuous stubbornness, and in this case, your violent response to that which we have before us. Don't I have enough trouble just having you in my party? I did not ask for your advice, and I don't want your advice. Stand down. So the lesson here is, I believe it's quite plain. We need to depart from intimate company when that company is stubborn and impetuous, that are bent on rushing to judgment and violence in the case of a misplaced zeal. We have to be very careful. David then proceeds to allow Shimei to continue his tirade against the king without so much as a rebuke. And the king said, What have I to do with you, ye sons of Zeruiah? So let him curse. Because the Lord, notice, the Lord has said to him, Curse David. Who shall then say, Wherefore hast thou done so? You see, David understands that nothing is done without the Lord's hand in it, even this sharp rebuke. Every providential orchestration, everything, from the birds flying in the sky to the birds falling down dead to the earth, God's hand is in it, and God's hand was on this man from the tribe of Saul. He is sensitive, David is sensitive to the providential workings of God, even when it comes forth out of the mouth of a wicked man such as Shimei. And so he embraces the rebuke. How many times have we embraced rebuke? He embraces the rebuke, knowing that God's hand is in it. Even though much of what Shimei is saying is wrong and untrue, David reinterprets it to accurately apply to his situation, making it a bitter pill of which he must swallow. And that's another lesson for us. We need to embrace bitter rebuke, even if 
much of it is false. There's always a lesson to be learned. Always. God is teaching us daily with everything. David then commends that Shimei be left alone. In the meanwhile, he laments over Absalom's hatred and rebellion against the king, his own father. Notice verse 11 and 12. And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son, which came forth of my bowels, seeketh my life. How much more now may this Benjamite do? In other words, I'm bearing my own son's rebellion. This, this guy speaking to me, what doesn't mean a thing. Doesn't mean a thing. It's only words. Let him alone. Let him curse. For the Lord had bidden him. It may be, however, that the Lord will look on mine affliction and that the Lord will requite me good for his cursing this day. Notice how he's trusting God. He's looking at the positive. A couple of things stand out here in these verses. Number one, David laments over the reality that his own son wants him dead. That is so horrible. Like Adam after the fall, seeking to be his God, but unable to be God unless God is done away with, so too does Absalom seek for the same thing. Kill the king so I could be king. Secondly, David then compares his sorrow and affliction that he has with his son to what Shimei is doing. And he says, it's nothing. This is nothing. I've got bigger problems than this guy. Thirdly, then he repeats his understanding of God's orchestration of all things. The Lord had bidden him to curse. And then finally, he then confesses that if he bears up under the curse of Shimei, if he doesn't retaliate against the man's words, which the Lord had brought upon him, perhaps the Lord will pity him. Perhaps the Lord will have mercy upon him because of all of the sorrow that's coming upon him. All the while, as they traveled through the city, Shimei continued to throw stones and dust at David and his company. Now consider the nuances here. Again, as with so many veiled allusions to spiritual truths, there may be one in the way Shimei aggravates David and his company. Consider the throwing of the stones. The throwing of the stone should remind us of the time when Jesus told the Pharisees that if they were guiltless, only then should they throw the first stone against the adulterous woman. The throwing of stones was always a symbol of being condemned by the law of God. The casting of dust, likewise, should remind us of a couple of things as well. The one, that we are but dust created out of the earth, making us by nature earthly. And secondly, when Moses cast dust into the air during the struggle with the Egyptian tyranny, God brought judgment. So dust symbolizes our depravity before a thrice holy God in the judgment that we are naturally in apart from the redeeming work of Christ. So these are all symbolic. And so it seems as if Shimei's weaponry of stones and dust is being used symbolically to indict David by the law of God, bringing upon him the judgment that he deserves according to the prophecy of Nathan for David's sins against Uriah the Hittite. And as David and his men went by the way, Shimei went along on the hillside over against him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and cast dust. Now, despite all of David's setbacks, all of David's sins, you've got to feel sorry for the man. You've got to pity him. To have a beloved son rebel in such a way that he even wanted his father dead is heartbreaking. Because now Absalom is David's sworn enemy, along with all the people under Absalom's sway. God here is showing us a glimpse of his own sorrow, I believe, over the rebellion of Adam, his beloved son, and how it pained him that he had now become his enemy. Adam 
in his fall became the enemy of God. And as a response, God had to become the enemy of Adam. In the same way that Absalom had become the enemy of David, David had to become the enemy of Absalom, and yet David still loved Absalom. And as we'll see later on, he did not want the man dead. Wonderfully, even the enemies of God can be reconciled to himself by the intervention of the mediator, the incarnate Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul clearly states, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life, And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Once David and his followers passed through the Benjaminite city, they reached their destination, most likely the Jordan River, and there they are refreshed. And the king and all the people that were with him came weary and refreshed themselves there. We shall pick up the story next time when we enter into the presence of Absalom to discover the strategy of Hushai, David's spy, and this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.